Welcome to the second episode of GTR Trade Talks, the official global trade review podcast channel. Today, we continue to bring you the best in trade and treasury content, with highlighted discussions and insights from GTR Asia Trade and Treasury Week 2017, the world's largest trade and treasury gathering. The event took place at Marina Bay Sands in Singapore on September the 5th to the 8th. If you missed the event or are looking to be involved next year, be sure to visit www.gtreview.com forward slash events for more information. Dates for 2018's event will be available soon. Our second highlighted speaker from the event is Richard Duncan. Richard spoke during the 9.10 morning plenary keynote session on day two, understanding potential threats to trade and economic stability in Asia. Richard examines how the build-up of trade imbalances over the last few decades have proved instrumental in leaving the global economy unstable and vulnerable to severe crises. I would like to hand over the stage to Richard Duncan, who is our keynote speaker for the day. Uh, he is a financial analyst, author, economist, and consultant. Richard, please welcome. Good morning, everyone. So I have lived in Asia for the most of the last 30 years, moving around between Hong Kong and Singapore and Bangkok. And during that time, I have seen Asia completely transformed. And it has been transformed as a result of the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, beginning in 1971. So this morning, I'm going to discuss some of the challenges and threats that confront Asia now. And I'm going to frame this by discussing how the world has changed as a result of the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system and how the global economy has evolved since then. So when the Bretton Woods system broke down in 1971, the global economy began evolving in a very different way. It works very differently now than it did before. Trade imbalances and capital flows between nations became enormous. Credit growth accelerated sharply. And central banks began creating money on an extraordinary scale. These changes created a worldwide economic boom that literally pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And Asia benefited more than any other part of the world. However, as the crisis of 2008 demonstrated, the global economic order that evolved out of the collapse of Bretton Woods is unstable and even potentially unviable over the longer run if mismanaged. So in this presentation, I'll begin by describing the evolution of the global economic system after the breakdown of Bretton Woods. I'll then discuss the crisis of 2008 and the revolutionary policy response that prevented that crisis from collapsing into a new Great Depression. We'll then look at the new tools now available to policymakers in this new environment and how those tools are being used to manage global economic growth. Next, we'll examine some of the threats currently facing the new global economic order and facing Asia in particular. And finally, I'll discuss how you as business leaders and treasury specialists can anticipate movements in currencies 
commodity prices and asset prices in this new regime. Okay, so to understand how the global economy works now in this post-Bretton Woods age, it's very useful to understand how it used to work under the gold standard or the quasi-gold standard Bretton Woods system. Under the gold standard, trade between countries had to balance. Let me explain by using an example of trade between England and France at the end of the 19th century. So at the end of the 19th century, if England had a very large trade deficit with France, then England's gold would have literally been put on a ship and sent over to France. So gold was money, so England's money supply would have contracted very sharply. That would have thrown England into a severe recession. They would have experienced rising unemployment and deflation. And the opposite would have happened in France. France would have had more gold, so credit would have expanded, the economy would have boomed, and they would have had inflation. And pretty soon, the rich French would start buying more cheap English goods, and the poor, unemployed English would stop buying so many expensive French goods, and trade would come back into balance. So there was an automatic adjustment mechanism under the gold standard. It's easy to understand. Gold was money. If you spent all of your money buying foreign goods, you didn't have any money, so you stopped buying foreign goods, and trade came back into balance. So under the gold standard and the Bretton Woods system, the most important thing to understand is that trade between nations balanced. Okay, we'll come back to that. Now, the second thing to understand is that under the gold standard, of course, gold was money. Dollars in the US had to be backed by gold. So when the central bank was created in 1913, it was a requirement that the Fed maintain at least 40% gold backing for every dollar that it issued. And that was later reduced to 35, uh, to, to uh, 25% in 1945. Okay, so the gold standard broke down when World War I started in 1914. All the European nations went to war. They didn't have enough gold to fight the war. So they started issuing a lot of paper money. Now, during the 20s, they, the global policymakers tried to recreate the gold standard that worked, and then it fell apart again. Then World War II started. Well, finally, at the end of World War II, uh, England and the United States re wanted to create a gold standard regime. That's all they knew. That's all they had ever understood or experienced. The problem was, at the end of World War II, the United States had almost all the world's gold. So it was impossible to, to create a global trading system in which gold was money if only one country had all the money. So instead they created the Bretton Woods system in which dollars were backed by gold and, at 30, and backed at $35 per ounce and all the other currencies were pegged to the dollar or pegged to gold at a fixed exchange rate. That was the Bretton Woods system. It also required that trade between countries balance. And the Bretton Woods system worked quite well for about 25 years, from 1945 and 1946 until 1971. The problem is, is that during the 1960s, the United States lost half of its gold reserves. Here in this chart, you can see US gold in millions of ounces starting in 1948. So during the 60s, you can see the US lost half of its gold reserves. 
That happened because the United States was spending too much money on the Vietnam War, and that was sending dollars overseas. And at the same time, a lot of European, a lot of US banks and corporations were investing in Europe, and that sent a lot of dollars overseas. And under the Bretton Woods rules, other countries had the right to take their dollars and convert them into US gold at $35 an ounce. So that's what they did. So during the 1930s, uh, sorry, the 1960s, uh, so many dollars had gone overseas that the US lost half of its gold reserves. And by 1971, there were actually four times as many dollars overseas as the United States had gold available to allow these dollars to be converted into. So in 1971, Nixon really had no choice, but, and he reneged on the United States' promise to allow dollars to be convertible into gold, and afterwards there was no longer any gold backing for the dollar, and we moved into a post-Bretton Woods world. Okay, you can see in this chart from 1945 up until the present, at the end of World War II, the U.S. had almost 100% gold backing for all of the dollars that it issued. But by 1968, it was down to the legal requirement. It only had a 25% gold backing. That was a legal requirement. So we were at a point where the Fed would have been unable to issue any new dollars whatsoever. And at that point, President Johnson asked Congress to remove this requirement for dollars to be backed by gold. And Congress agreed. Afterwards, they removed the requirement for gold, for dollars to be backed by gold, and there, were no longer, there was no longer any gold backing for the currency whatsoever. And afterwards, everything began to change. So you can see here, this is currency in circulation. In other words, the amount of dollars in circulation. In 1968, where the arrow is, um, you can see how many dollars have been issued since then. There's something like $1.6 trillion. That issuance of paper money would not have been possible if we had remained on a system where it required 25% gold backing. So that's obviously a very large increase in the amount of money in circulation that couldn't have occurred had we remained on the gold standard or the quasi-gold standard Bretton Woods system. But the real change is shown in this chart. This shows the amount of credit dollar-denominated credit. Now, total debt and total credit are two sides of the same coin. One person's debt is another person's asset. So what I mean by total debt or total credit is all the debt in the country. Government debt, household sector debt, corporate se sector debt, financial sector debt, all the debt. So notice that it first went through $1 trillion in 1964, when I was three years old. It then expanded 50 times up until 2007. So from $1 trillion to $50 trillion in just 43 years. And then some of that credit couldn't be repaid. It started to dip. And that dip almost created a new Great Depression. But as a result of aggressive government intervention and government borrowing, the credit began to expand again. And now we're up to $66 trillion. So in between 1964 and now, total debt in the US has expanded 66 times. And this explosion of credit has created our world. And that would not have been possible if we'd remained on the Bretton Woods system. Now, so this chart shows the ratio of total debt to GDP from 1951. For a long time, it was about 150%. But then 
President Reagan started running very large budget deficits in the 80s, and it started expanding. So the ratio went from 150% all the way up to 370% at the peak. So in other words, credit was growing much more rapidly than the economy. And in fact, it was the credit growth that was driving the economic growth in the United States. And the economic growth in the United States was driving the global economic growth. That's what you can see in this chart. This chart shows the US current account deficit. It's, we can say the trade deficit to make things more simple, more or less the trade deficit. Now remember, as I have been saying, trade between countries had to balance. This chart starts in 1960. You can see there was no current account deficit up, up until Bretton Woods started breaking down in 1971. It didn't take the United States long, however, after the breakdown of Bretton Woods to realize that it could buy things from other countries and it no longer had to pay with gold. It could pay with paper dollars or treasury bonds denominated in paper dollars. And this completely changed the world. So you can see by the mid-1980s, the current account deficit started becoming very much larger. Now that doesn't look very large compared to what happened in 2006, but in terms of GDP, in the mid-80s it peaked at 3.5% of US GDP. And nothing like this had ever occurred before. This was, uh, on, uh, this was destabilizing the global economy and very alarming to global policymakers. Uh, so the global policymakers met at the Plaza Accord and reached the, at the Plaza Hotel in New York and reached the Plaza Accord and agreed that the dollar would be devalued by 50% against the yen and the mark. And so that's what happened and that's why the trade temporarily came back into balance. But let's think about what happened in the 1980s. So the US started running this very large trade deficit, primarily with Japan. So Japan was like France in my earlier example. Japan had the trade surplus, so dollars were going into Japan. These dollars were exogenous to the Japanese economy. They went into the banking system as deposits, they caused credit to expand, and they caused the Japanese economy to boom. But the US, unlike England in their earlier example, it didn't deflate because it didn't run out of gold. It didn't run out of the means of payment. It could keep paying with paper dollars and treasury bonds. So the US didn't deflate. In fact, the trade deficit kept becoming larger and larger. It didn't correct. So Japan's trade surplus became larger and larger. And as the trade surplus became larger in Japan, Japan's economy boomed and boomed and boomed until by the end of the 80s, the gardens around the Imperial Palace in Tokyo were said to be more valuable than California. And all the stocks were trading on 100 times PE multiples. And then the bubble popped. Okay, well the same pattern has occurred again and again as a result of this US trade deficit. Now naturally, as the US trade deficit became larger, and it peaked in 2006 at $800 billion in that one year. That was 6% of US GDP. As long as the US trade deficit became larger, the rest of the world's trade surplus became larger. So between 1980 and 2007, when this started to correct, the cumulative deficit was $7 trillion during just up until 2007. So that meant that the rest of the world was able to produce and sell 
$7 trillion worth of goods more than it would have been able to do during those years if we had remained on the Bretton Woods system. So the larger the US trade deficit became, the more the rest of the global economy prospered, and Asia in particular, because of course Asia, the Asian countries had the largest trade surpluses. Japan, later Korea, Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see next after Japan came the Asia crisis. I was living in Bangkok from 1990 until 96, running a big research department for what's now HSBC Securities, and I watched Thailand blow into this enormous economic bubble as a result of so many dollars coming into Thailand from abroad. They went into the Thai banks, deposits expanded rapidly, so loans expanded rapidly, and suddenly there were hundreds of skyscrapers on the horizon, and Thailand was blown into an enormous economic bubble as a result of these trade imbalances and capital flows that wouldn't have been possible under the Bretton Woods system. And then and that all blew up in 1997. It turned out not just to be Thailand, but also Malaysia, Indonesia, and Korea, the Asia crisis. So I always say that's where I had my education in bubblenomics, was in Bangkok, watching Bangkok blow into a bubble. And the pattern has been the same since then. After Asia, next came, well, China primarily, but the entire world has been blown into a bubble as a result of these enormous trade deficits financed with paper dollars, essentially, and treasury bonds denominated in paper dollars. Well, then in 2008, when the Americans were so heavily indebted they couldn't repay their debt, this started correcting, and the, the whole world went into severe shock. So again, none of this would have been possible if we'd remained on the Bretton Woods system. Now, this is um, another important aspect of what has changed. What this chart shows is total foreign exchange reserves in the world from 1950 up until the present. They peaked at $12 trillion in 2014. So what are foreign exchange reserves? Let me give you an example. Uh, first of all, foreign exchange reserves are owned by central banks and only central banks. So let me use the example of China, because China had the largest amount of foreign exchange reserves and still does. At the peak, China had $4 trillion of foreign exchange reserves. So what are these? Okay, last year China's trade surplus with the United States was about $350 billion, a third of a trillion dollars. So Chinese exporters take their goods to the United States, they sell them, they get paid in dollars, they take these dollars back to China, they want to convert them into RMB, but if they were to convert $350 billion into RMB in a free market, of course that would drive up the RMB radically and kill China's export-led growth and cause a severe crisis in China's economy. So in order to prevent that from happening, the central bank, the PBOC, intervenes and it buys all of the dollars that come into China at more or less a fixed exchange rate so that the currency doesn't appreciate. So the Chinese exporters get to convert their money into RMB and they can do anything they want with it, but sooner or later it ends up on deposit in the Chinese banks, causing rapid deposit growth, rapid loan growth, and the economic boom and the economic bubble. But the point of this story is the central bank. The PBOC ended up with an extra $350 billion. Now the question, the thing to understand is where did the PBOC last year get $350 billion worth of RMB? that they used to buy the $350 billion? Well, the answer, of course, is they're a central bank. 
and they have a magic wand. They can wave it around and poof, they can create $350 billion from thin air, or the equivalent in RMB terms. So that's how China got $4 trillion of foreign exchange reserves, by creating paper money from thin air. And that's how total foreign exchange reserves in the world increased to $12 trillion, by the central banks of the trade surplus countries creating paper money from thin air and using it to manipulate their currencies so that their currencies wouldn't appreciate and they could perpetuate their export-led growth. So between 2000 and 2014, this increased from $2 trillion to $12 trillion. That was a $10 trillion increase in fiat money creation. Nothing like this has ever occurred in peacetime before. This dwarfs the amount of quantitative easing the Fed has done. The Fed only created $3.5 trillion so far through quantitative easing. This is three times that amount. So this explains the global economic boom that we experienced during this period. Really, there were two steps. Step one, the US runs this enormous trade deficit and throws dollars off into the global economy, absorbing the rest of the world's exports. And step two, the central banks in the surplus countries print their own money and then buy these dollars so that the system is perpetuated. And in combination, this created the greatest boom in history. This is the boom that we've enjoyed all of our lives. So this combination really created the greatest boom in history probably and literally pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. But the problem is it also resulted in bubbles. The trade surplus countries like Japan, Thailand, and China all blow into bubbles. But at the same time, these dollars get recycled into the trade deficit countries and blow the deficit countries into bubbles as well. Let me show you. So what this chart shows is the United States balance of payments. This is the trade deficit that we have seen already. This was $800 billion. But every country's balance of payments has to balance. So when the US has an $800 billion trade deficit, it will have $800 billion of capital inflow on the capital and financial account. The two must balance. It's like a family. If a family spends more money than it earns, it has to borrow money or sell something. It's the same for countries. So when these deficits became so large, then enormous amounts of money went into the United States. And as this money went into the United States, it blew the United States into a bubble. So it's interesting, here, 1980s, when the US current account deficit corrected, then the capital inflows into the United States also shrank. And when the capital inflows in the United States started shrinking, what happened in 1987? I woke up one morning and the stock market was down 23%. I believe these things are not a coincidence. And when we had the massive inflows of capital, then the US was blown into an economic bubble, the property bubble. So at the peak, with all of this foreign money coming into the United States, this shows household sector debt. The data points are quarterly, but for five years in a row, household sector debt was increasing by $1 trillion every year. And as the US households borrowed more and spent more and consumed more, the United States imported more and the rest of the world exported more, particularly Asia, and the global economy boomed and prospered. But in 2008, the Americans couldn't repay their debt. They were cut off for more credit and the, whole, and the game stopped. 
<clears throat> so what I've described, this pattern, is very similar to the, what resulted in the Great Depression during the 1930s. Let me explain. In my opinion, the Great Depression originated in World War I. Because in World War I, all the European nations went to war. They didn't have enough gold to fight the war. So they went off the gold standard and they started printing a lot of paper money. And they used all the new paper money to finance the government debt that they needed to finance the war. So all of this government debt and all of this paper money during World War I led to a worldwide credit bubble that we call the Roaring Twenties. But in 1930, all that debt couldn't be repaid, and the international banking system collapsed, and global trade collapsed, and policymakers didn't know what to do. They were capitalists. They believed in laissez-faire. They had no clue what to do. So they just stepped back, and they let market forces work. And market forces did work. Market forces established a new equilibrium. Unfortunately, that new market-determined equilibrium was at a level of GDP that was 45% lower than it had been in 1929, at a level of unemployment that was 25%. And the Great Depression started, and it lasted for 10 years. And during those years, Nazi Germany took over Europe, a militarized Japan took over Asia, World War II started, and 60 million people died. Okay, this time the pattern's been very similar up until the time of the policy response. The Bretton Woods system broke down in 1971. Government started issuing more and more government debt and more and more paper money. This created a three-decade-long global economic boom that we enjoyed all of our lives. But in 2008, the credit couldn't be repaid. And again, the international banking system started to collapse. Global trade started to collapse. But this time, instead of letting market forces work, policymakers intervened very aggressively to make sure that market forces didn't work. They intervened with extraordinarily aggressive fiscal policy and extraordinarily aggressive and unorthodox monetary policy. And these things reflated the global bubble and prevented it from collapsing into a new depression. <clears throat> so you can see US budget deficits were more than a trillion dollars a year for four years in a row. And the Fed cut interest rates to 0% and left them there for eight years. Now, this wouldn't have been possible if we'd remained on the Bretton Woods system, because very low interest rates in the US, if interest rates in the US were zero and interest rates in France were 3%, all the US gold would have gone to France for the higher interest rates. The dollars had to be backed by gold. So it wasn't possible for the Fed to act this aggressively under the Bretton Woods rules or under the gold standard rules. And then the Fed printed $3.5 trillion in three rounds of quantitative easing. And of course, that wouldn't have been possible under the Bretton Woods system. It printed this money, and it used this new money to buy financial assets, pushing up their price and driving down their yields. So the Fed, in between 2008 and 2014, printed $3.5 trillion. That was roughly 20% of GDP in 2014. Whereas in the Depression, the Fed printed some money, but it was 90% less. It was only 2% of GDP. So this was a much more aggressive policy response this time, and it worked. Every time the Fed launched, this shows the S&P index. Every time, the, in 2008, the stock market was in free fall, but they launched QE1 and the stock market went up. 
When QE1 stopped, the market went down, so they launched QE2, the market went up. When QE2 stopped, the market went down, so they launched QE3, and the market went up and up and up. And the, that inflated asset prices. What this chart shows is household sector net worth. What that means is all the assets of the Americans minus all of their debt. Because of quantitative easing, household net worth has gone up $40 trillion since 2009. It's gone up 73% as a result of this government intervention in the markets. And that allowed the economy to grow. It created a wealth effect. It allowed the Americans to consume again and to import again and for the world to export again. <clears throat> in this chart, going back to 2000, the red bars are how much the government borrowed every year, basically the budget deficit. And the green bar shows how much paper money the Fed printed. So once the crisis started, the Fed basically printed enough money to finance half of the government borrowing during those years. So this combination of a very aggressive monetary and fiscal policy, it worked. Interest rates fell to record low levels and that stimulated the economy. The large budget deficit stimulated the economy directly. And when the Fed printed three and a half trillion dollars, it used that money to buy financial assets. And whoever it bought those assets from, they had three and a half trillion dollars that they had to invest somewhere else, like in stocks. And so that pushed up the stocks. And they also bought bonds, so that pushed up the bond prices and drove down the bond yields. So this time, as a result of this policy, mass bank failures were prevented, credit continued to expand, and the economy grew again. And we didn't collapse into a new Great Depression. And this policy worked because it stopped credit from contracting and then it made credit grow again. So in our age, in this 21st century post Bretton Woods world, I believe the most important thing you need to understand about how the economy works is you need to understand that credit growth drives economic growth. Credit growth drives economic growth. You can see that in this chart. This is for the US. It goes back to 1952. The red bars are GDP growth, and the blue bars are credit growth adjusted for inflation. In other words, credit growth minus the CPI rate. Anytime credit grows by less than 2%, the US goes into recession. That happened nine times between 1952 and 2008. And those recessions didn't end until we had another big surge of credit growth. So anytime credit grows by less than 2% adjusted for inflation, you can expect the United States to go into recession without some sort of extraordinary additional stimulus. Now, so I try to project out how much credit growth will grow by every year. And this is relatively uncomplicated because there are only five or six big sectors of the economy that are big enough to have an impact. You can see the black line is government debt. This goes back to, again, to 1951. Here's when the crisis started. You can see the black line doubled. Government debt more than doubled. All the other sectors, the household sector, the corporate sector, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, local businesses, state and local government, they all corrected. But it was the expansion of government debt that prevented total credit from collapsing and prevented us from collapsing into a new depression. But the thing is, projecting these out, it looks to me that this year, Credit's only going to grow by 2% and next year by 1.9%. 
So that's not enough. We're going to need some sort of extraordinary stimulus to keep the economy from going back into recession. <clears throat> now, so to keep the global economic bubble inflated, the governments around the world are managing the economy. This is not capitalism. We have a government-directed economic system now. They manage it by making credit grow and by making asset prices inflate. And interest rates are the key to controlling both credit growth and asset prices. So the central banks are managing the global economy through their control over interest rates. Quantitative easing in the United States ended in October 2014, but it's still going on very aggressively in, the, in Europe and Japan. The European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan are still printing money very aggressively, and they're buying bonds in Europe and Japan that pushes up the bond prices and drives down bond yields in those countries. And the low bond yields there also put a cap on US bond yields. So Japan is still printing something like 60, the equivalent of $61 billion every month. Europe's printing something closer to $70 billion a month. And so the, every quarter, this is the equivalent of $400 billion that's being created by just those two central banks and pumped into the global economy. So we're still having extraordinary monetary stimulus that's keeping interest rates at extremely low levels. The 10-year bond yield in the US this morning was very close to 2%. And in fact, the Bank of Japan has now printed and bought up so many Japanese government bonds that the Bank of Japan owns 30%, 36% of all Japanese government debt. The ECB owns something now close to 25% of all Euro area government debt. The Bank of England owns 25% of all UK government debt, and the Fed owns 12% of all US government debt, plus the Fed also owns another $1.7 trillion of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac debt. So this has really been nothing less than a monetary revolution after the breakdown of Bretton Woods. This shows the total foreign exchange reserves again. So between 1971 and 2007, the trade surplus countries printed $6 trillion, and then after the crisis struck, they printed another $6 trillion. And the Fed, the BOJ, the Bank, of the Bank of England, and the ECB, between 2006 and 2016, they printed $10 trillion, increasing their assets by 270%. So adding those two parts together, that means those central banks have created the equivalent of $22 trillion. $22 trillion is enough to buy all of the US government debt with a couple trillion left over. So this has been money creation on a scale the world has never seen before, and it has changed our world entirely. So this is the great taboo. Central banks must not print money. This is the great taboo of central banking. It's always been understood if central banks print money, it leads to inflation. Why didn't it lead to inflation? because of globalization. Globalization is extremely deflationary. Two billion people live on less than $3 a day. So this, you don't have to hire someone in Detroit to build a car anymore and pay that person $200 a day. You can hire someone in Western China and pay that person $10 a day. So this represents a 90-something percent drop in the marginal cost of labor. It's extraordinarily deflationary. And the deflationary forces of globalization have offset all of the inflationary forces from the paper money creation, 
creating what is nothing less than a unique moment in history where over the last nine years, the United States government has been able to borrow something like $10 trillion of additional debt and finance a third of it with paper money creation without creating any inflation at all at the CPI level. Now, many people think this is going to collapse at any moment, but my advice would be don't hold your breath waiting for this to come to an end because what this chart shows is Japanese government debt as a percentage of Japan's GDP. When Japan's bubble popped in 1990, Japan's government debt was about 60% of Japan's GDP. Every year since then, Japan has had very, very large budget deficits. That's kept Japan's bubble economy from collapsing into a depression. And now Japan has 250% government debt to GDP. Whereas the US only has 100% government debt to GDP. So the US economy is $19 trillion in size. That suggests the US government could borrow and spend another $19 trillion, let's say over the next 10 years, before it even hit 200% government debt to GDP. And that's assuming 0% GDP growth. Whereas if they spent $10 trillion or $19 trillion over the next 10 years, the economy would grow by 10% every year and we would never hit 200% government debt to GDP. So this arrangement has the potential to go on for a very, very, very long time as long as the government doesn't do anything stupid, which of course cannot be ruled out. So let's talk about the risk of this new system. And the greatest risk to this new world we live in is higher interest rates. Because if interest rates go up, credit's going to contract and asset prices are going to fall and we're going to have a severe recession or worse. All right, this chart goes back to 1980. The blue line represents interest rates, the 10-year government bond yield. They used to be 15% in 1980. They've now come down to 2%. And as the interest rates fell, that made credit more affordable so the Americans could borrow more. And so the ratio of debt to GDP went from 150% to 370%. And as credit expanded, the US economy grew and the global economy grew. Now, if interest rates move up, credit's going to contract. And if it does, we're going to have a depression. So what could cause interest rates to move higher? Well, the greatest near-term threat is quantitative tightening. On September 20th, the Fed is expected to announce to the world that they're going to begin reversing quantitative easing. They're going to begin shrinking their balance sheet. And they've provided us the schedule on how they intend to do this. Once this starts, in the first month, they'll reduce the size of their assets by 10 billion. And they'll do that for three months. And then for the next three months, it will be reduced by 20 billion a month. And then the following three months, by 30 billion a month. The following three months, 40 billion. And by the 13th month, the Fed's assets will be shrinking by $50 billion every month. Now, this is going to be extreme monetary tightening. And this is what the Fed's assets will look like on their balance sheet if this really occurs, going out to the end of 2019. Between now and the end of 2019, the Fed's assets will shrink by $1 trillion. In other, in other words, it will be reverse quantitative easing of $1 trillion, quantitative tightening. It will shrink their assets by a trillion dollars by 23%. So just as quantitative easing pumped money into the economy and pushed up asset prices, 
quantitative tightening would suck money out of the economy and cause asset prices to fall and interest rates to rise if it really occurs. So the financial markets should be terrified of this, and so far they haven't reacted. <clears throat> now the third risk, another risk, is President Trump's economic policies. We don't know for certain what President Trump's economic policies are going to turn out to be, but if he does what he said he would do during the election, it is a recipe for disaster. Because what he said he was going to do is he's going to increase government spending on the military and on infrastructure at the same time that he cuts taxes on corporations and the wealthy. So if you have more spending and less revenues, the budget deficit will become much larger. So already the budget deficit is $500 billion a year. Under those policies, it could double to a trillion a year. And all other things being the same, the more money the government borrows, the, more, the higher interest rates rise. But other things won't be the same because he also has pledged to eliminate the US trade deficit, which is also about $500 billion a year. Now, as I showed you in the balance of payments chart, the balance of payments has to balance. So when the US has a $500 billion trade deficit, it also has $500 billion of capital inflow. Now, if you eliminate this trade deficit, you eliminate the $500 billion of capital inflow. So the budget deficit doubles, and, and $500 billion of funding disappears. This is going to push up interest rates. And finally, if you put up 40% trade tariffs on Chinese goods and 30% trade tariffs on Mexican goods, then suddenly everything in Walmart's going to be 35% more expensive. That's going to cause inflation to spike up to 8 or 10% and treasury bonds to spike up to 10 or 12%. And the higher interest rates would crush the economy. So that would be a complete disaster. Let's hope none of that happens. So far, none of it has. Now, let me talk a little bit about China. China's had the greatest economic boom in history. This shows China's economy as a percent of the US economy. In the 2000, year 2000, it was only 12% the size of the US economy. Now it's about 65% the size of the US economy. China has boomed following a strategy of export-led and investment-driven growth, exporting primarily to the United States. In 1990, China didn't have a trade surplus with the US, and it was a very, very poor developing country. Now it has a third of a trillion dollar trade surplus every year, and it's completely transformed China. <clears throat> In fact, we've always known for decades that China's economy has been growing much faster than the US economy in percent terms, but what this chart shows is that this is growth in dollar terms. China's growth in red, the US growth in blue. So since the crisis started in 2008, China's economy has been growing much more rapidly in absolute dollar terms than the US economy has. So it has, in a large extent, replaced the US as the main driver of growth. But of course, China's growth depends on its exporting to the US. So it's not that simple. Now, China's growth has been fueled by an investment boom. Investment as, this shows that since 1990, investment, as in gross fixed capital formation, has expanded by 50 times in China. But now China has excess capacity across every industry on a mind-boggling scale. This shows cement production, just for one example. It expanded nine times between 1990 and 2014. And you may have heard that in just three years, 2011, 12, 13, China produced as much cement 
as the United States did during the entire 20th century. Now, if they do that again for the next three years, that means 0% growth in that industry. They have to do that every three years just to stand still. They have 59% of global cement capacity already. And it's the same in almost every industry, massive excess capacity. So, and this was all funded through credit growth. This shows aggregate financing increased nine times between 2002 and 2015. But credit growth in blue has been slowing. So economic growth has also been slowing. It took 13% credit growth to generate 6% economic growth in 2015. But the credit base is twice as large as the GDP base. So what this really means is that it took 15 trillion worth of RMB in credit expansion just to generate 4 trillion of RMB in economic expansion. So this money is being increasingly misallocated. The problem is, is in China, median income is $8 a day. So you can't buy a lot of cement if you're earning $8 a day and you have to pay for your lunch and dinner and your housing. So the people in the Chinese factories do not earn enough money to, uh, to absorb all of the things they're producing in the factories. And now the rest of the world is also saturated. The United States, there's a very big political backlash against free trade. Donald Trump was elected because he promised to put up 40% trade tariffs against Chinese goods and protect the white workers. Um, that's what they expect from him. And Europe, similar story. The world is just not big enough to continue absorbing more and more Chinese exports every year. And domestically, the Chinese don't earn enough money to absorb what they're producing. So this just can't possibly go on. We've hit the point now where there's massive excess capacity across every there. And the more China invests at this stage, the more money it loses. The non-performing loans in the banking system are piling, piling up, and this just can't go on. China's economic growth model of export-led and investment-driven growth is in crisis. And of course, that means that China's economy could stop growing completely, just like Japan's did in 1990. In fact, Japan's economy is no larger today than it was in 1993 if you don't adjust for deflation. Something very similar, if not worse, could happen in China. And if it does, you can imagine what that's going to mean for the global economy, commodity prices, trade, credit, et cetera, et cetera. It wouldn't be pretty. Now, a few words about the US dollar. Between mid-2014 and March 2015, the dollar appreciated by 22%. And that's what caused all of the problems in 2015 and 2016. Uh, commodity prices crashed, so world trade contracted. The currencies of the commodity producing countries sank. Uh, the corporate profits flattened out, stocks did badly. So what caused this to happen? Well, the reason the dollar appreciated was because of monetary policy divergence. It was in 2014 that the Fed stopped quantitative easing. So the Fed was tightening monetary policy. But meanwhile, the Bank of Japan and the ECB were still printing very aggressively. So they had loose policy, the Fed had tight policy, so the dollar got stronger. Now, let's look forward for the next couple of years, because this could happen again. Here we have the assets of the five big central banks. I've already shown you the Fed. The Fed, this goes out to 2019. The Fed's assets could shrink by 
That would be extreme monetary tightening. But the, green, the light blue line is the Bank of Japan. There's no indication that they're going to slow down their quantitative easing program anytime soon. The European Central Bank might, but they're only talking about beginning to taper their QE, not to re reverse it. So if this occurs, we're going to have once again extreme monetary policy divergence. In other words, the dollar should become very much stronger and the yen should become very much weaker. And we will have a replay of what happened in 2015 when the dollar got stronger. The commodity prices will weaken, currencies of the commodity producing countries will be hit, world trade will suffer. So let's hope that the Fed really doesn't carry through with this threat to do quantitative tightening. They probably won't. The markets won't like it. There'll be a big wobble in the stock market. The market will drop 10% and they'll stop their quantitative tightening. And if the US market falls 20%, the Fed would probably launch another round of quantitative easing. So uh, this is what they're telling us will happen, but this probably won't happen. But it may cause significant volatility in the markets before the Fed backs off from its plans to have quantitative tightening. Now, just to wrap up, so how to anticipate movements in commodity prices, currencies, and asset prices in this post Bretton Woods world? Okay, it's not that complicated. Commodity prices are driven by the dollar. When the dollar goes up, commodity prices go down, and vice versa. What about currencies? Well, currencies are driven by interest rate differentials, or changes in quantitative easing. So the more money that a, that a country prints, then its currency depreciates. And tighter monetary policy causes the currency to appreciate. So interest rate differentials drive currencies. And then asset prices. What drives asset prices? Well, interest rates, again. Asset prices go up when interest rates go down. And asset prices go down when interest rates go up. So all three of these things are determined by interest rates. Commodity prices, currencies, and asset prices are all driven by interest rates or interest rate differentials. And interest rates are determined by monetary policy. And monetary policy is dictated by the necessity to make the economy continue to grow by causing credit to expand and asset prices to inflate. The central banks are managing our economy by making credit expand and asset prices inflate. They're driving the economy. This is not being driven by market forces. Okay, so how to understand economics and financial markets in the post Bretton Woods world? First and foremost, understand that credit growth drives economic growth. And governments, primarily the central banks, are managing the economy to make sure that credit continues to expand. If credit growth becomes too weak, then the economy will go into recession. And if credit contracts significantly, there will be a depression. Central banks will do whatever is necessary to prevent that from happening. Quantitative easing is how the central banks will keep interest rates low during the years ahead. A new round of quantitative easing in the United States should be expected from the Fed the next time the US goes into recession. And the US is overdue for a recession. So expect another round of quantitative easing in the not too distant future. And finally, quantitative easing is most effective when it's combined with aggressive fiscal stimulus. In other words, government borrowing and spending. So the combination of paper money printing with government borrowing is the most effective. And we're probably going to be in for both these things 
well into the future. So that's how economics and the financial markets work in the post Bretton Woods age. It's government directed through control over interest rates, through paper money creation and government borrowing and spending. Okay, I'm sure that I have massively overrun my time. Uh, I am happy to take questions, but there may not be time for that. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much for your okay. presentation. Uh, we will now open the floor for uh, a few questions. Uh, any questions? Yes. Uh, we have uh, the mics. If you can kindly raise your hand, we will serve you with the mic. Thanks for this very interesting speech. Um, what the, my question is, where do you invest your money? <laughs> it depends on how much money you have. <laughs> if you don't have very much, just give it to your wife and let her spend it. It'll make your, make your life easy. If you have billions, then of course you have to diversify. If you are an individual with a few million dollars and want to put all of your eggs in one basket, I think the most sensible place to put your money is to buy a piece of land with a house on top of it uh, uh, and rent out the house. Because if a lot of people love gold, and I think everybody should have some gold, the problem with gold is it has no cash flow. Uh, whereas if gold goes up, land prices will also go up. And meanwhile, you can rent out the house and have cash flow. And if gold goes down, the land will also go down, but you'll still have cash flow and you can grow vegetables. <laughs> so for individuals, in the United States, for instance, where I live, you can buy a very nice house for $300,000 on a half an acre of land, and you can rent it out, and you can buy lots of these. It takes some work to manage them, but you can hire someone to manage them for you. And you can borrow money at fixed interest rates and lock it in for 15 or 30 years, up to you. And if interest rates go lower, you can refinance it and lock it in even at lower rates. So in terms of just one investment choice, that's my pick. Thanks, Richard. Any other questions? Now look, I know what I've said it sounds kind of depressing. Uh, <laughs> but it, it need not be, because actually this new world that we're in creates unprecedented opportunities at the same time. So as I've said before, the government over the last nine years has borrowed and spent something like $10 trillion and financed a third of it with paper money creation. Well, we need to think about what this means for our future. This is a, a unique moment in history where it is possible for central banks to create money on a multi-trillion dollar scale without creating inflation. Is this going to end tomorrow? Is this going to end next month, next year, or 10 years from now? If this is going to go on for years, we need to think about how the government can borrow money at ultra-low interest rates, or, or even free, have it financed by the central banks. And the government needs to come up with investment policies, uh, investing in new industries and new technologies on a very aggressive scale. And if they do this, we can grow our way out of this crisis and never collapse. I mean, I believe the government, the US government over the next 10 years could invest a trillion dollars in solar energy, a trillion dollars in biotech, a trillion dollars in genetic engineering, a trillion dollars in nanotech, 
and starting from investment at the university level, basic research level. And by doing this, they could induce a new technological revolution that would not only grow our way out of this crisis, but produce technological miracles and medical marvels that would benefit everyone on this planet. So it's not all doom and gloom. We're living in a world where the government can spend trillions of dollars, finance it with paper money creation, without creating an inflation. We need to be open to this as a new possibility that we as a society have never lived through before and take maximum advantage of what is essentially free money. So it's not all doom and gloom. We need to think about the opportunities that exist within this new post Bretton Woods world age as well as the threats of it all coming unwound. So I would like to end on a more positive note. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. A round of applause, please, for Richard. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to our free podcast to hear the top trade discussions from over 20 international GTR events, one-to-one -one interviews, and more. If you'd like to be kept up to date with GTR's daily news and industry events, sign up for our free newsletters at www.gtreview.com forward slash register. Finally, we love to hear your feedback, so please email us at tradetalks at gtreview.com and let us know your thoughts. We will be back in a couple of weeks with some more updates from the next GTR event, GTR Africa Trade and Infrastructure Finance Conference 2017.